wow, it's really great to see all of you uh, here this morning. A few months ago when we thought, hey, should we have a service the day after Christmas? We're like, well, nobody else around us is really doing it. And then I got really nervous when my mom said that even she wasn't going to show up. So <laughs> it's great, great to be with you guys. Uh, kind of crazy, but the new year is just six, six days away. 2021, going to be in the history books and... Perhaps uh, you, along with uh, millions of others all around the world, are thinking about making their New Year's resolutions. And so I came across a YouTube video of a really cute little girl and her dad. They put together these videos uh, every once in a while. And uh, she does a good job of sort of encapsulating the heart of what makes a New Year's resolution effective. So just a couple couple minutes long. So let's just uh, take a look at what she has to share here. I have a problem with New Year's resolutions, not because they often fail or because they're too difficult, and not because I'm bad at them either. I mean, I've only been in love for four New Years. No, I have a problem with resolutions because people think that that's it. It's for one time to change. Now, don't get me wrong, we definitely all need change. How to ride a bicycle on my little brother has no idea what a toilet is for. And some of you, yeah, you should probably should get out of the house more. But one big solution probably isn't going to do it. Sorry. So now what? Flush your resolutions down the toilet for one my little brother can't use? Of course not. Keep your resolutions but go easy on yourself. Will you change? Maybe, but probably won't happen in one big moment. It'll happen in thousands of little moments. Every time you choose to forgive or slow down or be grateful or stay calm each little moment that you choose what's what instead of what's easy. Faith instead of doubt. Love instead of hate. That's where the change happens. Even if you fail one or two or thirty times, it's okay. You've got thousands of more little moments ahead of you. You'll get better. So happy new year. God bless. And I'm off to ask my dad to get a bike. If they were a pony. <laughs> First off, she's so dang cute. Secondly, that, that, that little message was, was actually inspired by a pastor named Paul Tripp. And he just makes the point that when it comes to making changes in our lives, so often we think this one big decision will be it, even in like an overnight decision. Starting tomorrow, this is it. But really what brings about change in our lives are those little decisions that we implement day in and day out. And so what I want to do uh, with you this morning is, uh, is, is challenge you a little bit. You know, as you look ahead to the new year, perhaps you're thinking about what changes you want to make in your life, but I, wanted you, I want you to think about making a, a, a change specifically in one of the relationships that you have. And if you don't already have it, let me just say you're missing out on the most important relationship that you could ever have. So... Uh, over the last couple of years, Americans have identified 
a new resolution. It's just kind of crept up into the top five, right? So typically resolutions have to do with something like, you know, I want to exercise, I want to diet, something maybe with their weight. Those are the typical New Year's resolutions. But there's, there's been a new one that's cropped up over the last couple of years. When you ask Americans what things do they want to change, uh, most will be quick to tell you this. This next year, I want to unplug. I want to unplug. I want to spend less time on the phone and on the computer, and I want to start making relationships, especially with all that we've experienced, the disconnect. And along with that is the idea that there's just something I need that's been missing, something fundamental to who I am as a human, and I want to get back to that. Not so much this, right? Not so much screen time, but more face-to-face time with humanity. And I think this is really interesting because when the Bible describes Christianity, it doesn't describe it as a religion. See, that's one of the misconceptions that people often have when they say, well, well, Christianity is just another religion, right? No, (laughs) not at all. The heart of Christianity, as defined in the Bible, is all about relationship. Right? And so that's what, that's, what we're, that's what we want and need in life is relationship. And so isn't that beautiful when God begins to write this letter, which is the, that's really what the Bible is. It's kind of a love letter to humanity. He says, here's what I want you to know. I want to have a real relationship with you. And so here we are in, on the verge of 2022, and uh, we're still craving the kind of relationships that the Bible speaks of. But it actually speaks of the kind of relationship that's defined by something that is uniquely characteristic. In fact, there's an interesting Greek word that we'll explore, and this word defines the kind of love that you just don't see in our world or in our society. In fact, outside of the Bible, this word for love, uh, this Greek word for love, even in Greek culture, you just don't see it that often. That's why very often it's been called God's love. And it, it, there's something about it that sets it apart from the world's love. But when you discover what it is, you realize this is exactly what I've been searching for my entire life. In fact, it's rare that you find this kind of love even from human contact. So I want to say again that before you leave here today, my challenge to you is going to be to rethink a New Year's resolution. That is to be going to be to put it in the context of relationship. So in John chapter 15, Jesus is actually having a conversation with his disciples, and he's explaining to them what a, what a relationship with him looks like. But the model for that is the relationship that Jesus has with with God. And so in John chapter 15, verse 12, he tells them this, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, what's interesting is that two chapters earlier, Jesus makes the same statement, but he qualifies a little bit. He says this, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, but this is a new commandment. It's a new commandment. They would understand that the old commandment was found in the Old Testament. Moses wrote in the book of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. We hear that platitude a lot in our culture, right? Even those who don't know much about the Bible, they're familiar with that, that saying, right? Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Here's the challenge with that. We got a lot of people in this world that have no love for themselves. (laughs) You know, 
the harsh reality of our existence, of the human existence, is that, well, it's one of the reasons why we partner with an organization like Death to Life. Because there's a lot of people who wake up in the morning and they're like, I'm not so sure I like myself. Why would I like you? <laughs> if I'm supposed to love you the way that I love myself, I don't have any love for myself, so that, therefore I got no love for you. Jesus says it's a new commandment. And what he does is he takes it one step further. He says, now don't think about loving others as you love yourself because you're going to wake up one morning and just, again, human nature is such that, man, I feel great, right? The ego is going strong and I'm on top of the world. And I, actually, I feel like, you know, I feel kind of superior. You know, I have a lot of love. I have a lot of self-love for myself. Well, what happens is when you have self-love, you become arrogant. And then it's hard for you to have the appropriate kind of love towards others. So loving your neighbor as you love yourself, you know, that, that sounds good. But Jesus actually takes it to another level. I want you to love others in the way that I have loved you. Um, now, one of the big challenges we have, especially in Western culture, especially in American culture, is that we don't really understand this concept of what love is. Maybe you've heard it said that love is never having to say you're sorry. Like most of the married people are smiling and laughing right now. Try that in your relationship and see how it goes. Even to say, well, my intentions were good. You know what I've realized in, I've been married for 29 years, intentions don't really count anymore. <laughs> It's like, oh, was it our anniversary? Let me tell you, I intended to remember. <laughs> My intention was good, right? It's not really about, about the intention. Um, it's, it's, about, it's about something something more. If we say that love is never having to say that we're sorry, really what we're saying is we're just... Uh, we're kind of thoughtless sometimes, quite frankly. That's just rude. So how about this? Um, do what you love because what you love is what makes you feel good. So that's another way that our culture defines love. Love is a feeling. And that's kind of dicey too. Um, because if love is, is a feeling, our feelings change all the time. Feelings can be part of love, but they certainly aren't the foundation of love. More so, what's really interesting is that Jesus commands love. So if love is a feeling, how do you command a feeling? You can't. So the love he's got to be taught. So oh, that's why I said that God's love is very different than the earthly loves that we're familiar with. It's, it's, uh, God's love is actually the kind of love that we want and need. Why would Jesus say love, but it is in the form of a command? Love. It'd be, like, it'd be like me telling you right now, okay, everybody, be sad. You're like, well, I don't, I don't have any reason to be sad. That, that is a feeling. And so, again, Jesus is taking things to the next level. Don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, but we're going to take it some other place. You love others in the way that I have loved you. So your, your concept of love is not about how, uh, how you feel. Um, it's not even about your best intentions. So the Greek word that Jesus uses to describe this kind of love, many of you might be familiar with, is the Greek word agape. And again, outside of the Bible, you don't see this word very often. And then in the form, the Greek form that he puts it in, it describes a continuous, ongoing action. So in other words, he's not just telling us to love each other on occasion. But every single time you see someone, 
especially those in the household of God. The Bible says treat everybody well, but especially of the, those within the household of faith, we're, we're to show love every time we have the opportunity. Now, uh, if, if we're really to dig deep, do a deep dive, and understand what this love not only is but looks like, we need to understand that the Bible says that God is love. Isn't that interesting? A lot of different ways that the Bible could define God. You say that God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is merciful. He, and he is all of those things, but the most direct definition, God is love. He's the source of it. So in 1 John 4.10, we read this, in this is love, and by the way, this is going to be the best definition of love you could ever imagine, right? And then, and then we're going to make some observations about it because we need, we need help. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's just a big word that means payment for our sins. So you pick this apart a little bit, and we're, we're going to examine four things. The first is this. The first thing we learn about God's love is that it takes the initiative and it doesn't wait. Now, the implications of this are really, really profound. Let me say it again. First thing we learn about the kind of love that God has is that it takes the initiative and it doesn't wait. So here's where the profound implications come into play. Well, I'll give you a real practical example from the life of Jesus. Jesus said to love your enemies. Human nature is such that I find it really easy to love people who love me, right? If you love me, if you show me some love, man, I am quick to respond and show you love. The challenge is when you don't show me love. In fact, it's really a challenge when you hurt me or wound me. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he actually modeled his own words. So he says, yeah, love your enemies. And what does Jesus do to the very people that are, are, are torturing him? He says, Father, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. That's God's love. Now, that's Jesus. And we're like, well, that's Jesus. What about us? Okay, I'll give you another example. My mother-in-law passed away a few years ago. A few years before she died, she was leaving a store and uh, this man walked up beside her and as she was walking along, he was walking along, kept getting closer until finally he's walking right next to her. And she's, you know, kind of feeling like there's something weird about this. And as she has that thought, the man grabs her purse, which is around her shoulder. Instinctively, she grabs onto it. And he pulls her to the ground. A little bit of a wrestling match going on. She's cut. She's bruised, she's bleeding, and the dude takes off with her stuff. They catch the guy. Ambulance comes, takes my mother-in-law uh, to uh, the hospital. They bandage her up. But more than anything, she's more traumatized by the whole experience. The guy is caught and uh, in jail, put him in jail. And while he's in jail, my mother-in-law writes him a letter. She says, I, I want you to know that I am a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I understand that Jesus has forgiven me for all the wrongs that I've ever done my entire life, a lifetime of wrongs. Because of that, I want you to know that I forgive you. 
I forgive you. There is no animosity. I'm not going to hold this against you. Because my faith reminds me that my God doesn't hold all the wrongs that I've done against me. So I'm going to be quick to offer forgiveness to you. How often do you see that today in our culture? You don't. Why? We hardly understand what it means to love one another in a healthy way, much less understand the love of God toward every single human being. And when you understand that, let me just put it to you this way. Perhaps the greatest proof of your understanding of God's love towards you is your ability to extend that same kind of love to others. And so the definition, just a simple, you know, simple sense, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. It's not like humanity was crying out, God, we recognize that we're sinners and we need a Savior. No, it's like everybody's kind of doing their own thing, and God's like, these people are jacked up. And they're carrying around a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. They're doing a lot of wrong. We need to give them a whole new definition of what it means to love each other. But we're not just going to give them a definition. We're going to give them a living example of Jesus on the cross. So Christianity is not a religion. It's about a relationship. The second thing we learn is that this is an act of the will. Not only does God initiate, but he makes a choice. I love Romans 5a. Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, God doesn't wait for humans to get their junk together. He simply says, come as you are. I've already, I've, I've made the choice to offer peace to you. And really, that's what Christmas is all about. Peace on earth, right? Goodwill toward men. But that begins when you make peace with God. Third thing we learn is that God's love is sacrificial. We talked about this uh, a couple days ago, right? Um, notice what it is that God sent. He sent his best. He sent his son. I've told you guys many times before how much I love you. I have such a deep love for our church family. But I'm not so sure I would offer the life of any one of my three kids for you. Depending on the day. I'm not so sure <laughs> that I would, right, offer any one of my three kids for you. I love you, but I don't know if I love you that much. Don't know if I'm willing to make that kind of, of, of sacrifice, but here's the point. God did. It's, it's not like any human can say, I just wish God would do more to prove it. What more could he do? Fourth thing we learn is that God's love is in the best interest of another person. So this is really the whole this is really a summation of the Bible, what I'm about to share with you next. All right, I'll do it for you in a couple minutes. God creates everything. It's all good at first. Then he realizes there's a not good. Adam is alone. He creates Eve. Perfect compliment for him. Beautiful, beautiful landscape. Beautiful garden. They have everything. God lays down one restriction. Just one. Just one. You realize that? Just one restriction. This creature comes on the scene and begins to question God's authority. Did God really say, don't eat from that tree? You know, as if to say, you know, sounds like maybe God is withholding something good from you. 
Meanwhile, look around. <laughs> look at the beauty that God has just created for you. Why would you question him? But there's this draw toward wanting to question authority and to want to be our own authority, and they fall for it. You know what's interesting? That creature says to Adam and Eve, do this and you will be like God. You know the irony of that? They were already created in the image of God. All the creation, all those other creatures, none of them were created in the image of God. Only you, humanity, created in the image of God. And that sneaky little thing says, you want to be like God? Do this. They were already created in the image of God. You are an image bearer of God. It's kind of crazy. You look around at the people next to you and you're like, yeah, that person created in the image of God. And because they disobeyed God, it's like the world just experienced this massive earthquake and everything was just ripped up and fragmented and just thrown around and chaos and division. The first act of the man and the woman was to hide from God. And that's what sin causes us to do. We hide from each other, right? They start blaming each other. Well, the woman that you gave me, you know. So that's where the world is at to this day. It's, it's a really messed up place because what's been exposed is the sinful side of of humanity, and again, it, it carries on today. And so, God said, "We got to fix this. We got to make this right." So, I'm going to I'm going to begin a redemption plan, a plan of rescue. And so, there will be one who comes, and he will take all of this error and all of this this wrongdoing upon himself, and he will relieve humanity of their guilt and shame forever by placing all of that on himself but he's going to have to die. That's the question people often ask. A lot of people are cool with Jesus. They're like, you know, I like Jesus. He's a good moral teacher, had a lot of, you know, a lot of good things to say, um, went around healing people and all that, but you have to ask your question, then why did they crucify him? Why did they kill, like, a really good guy? You know, he did a lot of really good things, and they nailed him to a cross. Why? Because when he came on the scene, he said something completely audacious. He said, your sins are forgiven. And at that time, Jews believed that only God was the one who could forgive sins. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, everybody's like, don't you dare claim to be God. And they nailed him to a cross. See, if only Jesus would have stopped short, right? If only he would have been like, you know, let's just be cool with the feeding and the healings. But he had to go there. He had to say, your sins are forgiven. That was the reason why he came to the earth. What started in the Garden of Eden, God was beginning to correct. And he actually put that plan in place Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we just get to, that's why in the Old Testament, you see all the, God speaking to all these men saying, okay, get ready. The Messiah is coming. Here's how you're going to know he's here. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. All these really, he's going he's to suffer death by crucifixion before crucifixion had been invented by the Persians. Come on, be real. Read the Bible. Take it at face value. Open-minded, open-hearted. You're going to be persuaded, all right? That this, it's, the evidence is there. Christianity is not a blind faith, all right? You, nowhere in the Bible does it say, come, let us emote together, let us have feelings. It says, come, let us reason together. Read the scriptures, you'll be convinced if you're open-minded and open-hearted. And so this was God's plan. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he has to die. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So it's like we're all working and working and working. We work in our sin, and at the end of the day, we get a paycheck, and that paycheck is death. 
But Jesus takes that paycheck and he says, no, 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 come on. I'm going to cash that. I'm going to cash that. And this is uh, the portrait of God's love story to humanity. You know, there's a reason why this story of Jesus has been told, been called the greatest story ever told. So real quickly, I want to I draw it to the conclusion by um, reading what Jesus says next. The very next verse, he says in John 15, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Isn't that great? He says, um, a new commandment I'm giving to you Love others as I have loved you. Well, what does that look like? And then he says, well, let me just give you a little nod to what's coming, buddies. A real friend is going to lay down his life for you. Now, they can't understand the fullness of what he's going to go through as he's about to endure the cross. But just this little nod to what comes next, they're going to walk away going, Jesus was my friend. <laughs> he said, Great, greater love is only that we lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus just did. Jesus must consider me a friend, and he considers you a friend too. The challenge is we have so many different words. I shouldn't say that. The, the Jews, ancient Jews, ancient Hebrews had so many different words to describe friendships. In English, we really only have like maybe one friend. You know, I, I joked with this before. I have like, I don't know how many, like two or 3,000 Facebook friends. Air quotes, friends. Most of those people I don't know, I've never even met. But they're categorized as friends. Uh, Hebrews were, the ancient Hebrews were more sophisticated. They had, they had actually seven different words to describe seven different kinds of friends. So uh, we see this in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I love the way the English Standard Version translates this. See the word companions? That's the Hebrew word rea. Some translations use the word English word friend for both of these uh, Hebrew words, but they're actually different. That's why the ESV does a better job on this, I think. The word companions is the Hebrew, English translation of the Hebrew word rea, and it describes a lot of acquaintances. Um, if you have a lot of acquaintances, well, he'll say, a man of many acquaintances may come to ruin. So th these are just really, these, these are people who maybe they know your name. Maybe you say, hey, what's up? You know, they say, how are you doing? And your response isn't to tell them the truth, how you're really doing. What do you say? Yeah, you're doing good. Well, you're not doing good. You're doing terrible. But you're never going to open up to this person because they are a rare friend. They're just a companion, just an acquaintance, some, you know, maybe a Facebook friend, maybe that'd be more modern day translation, right? Maybe a lot of Facebook friends may come to ruin. This is the reason why people are like, how come that person with so many friends, how can that influencer with so many followers contemplate taking his or her own life? Because they have many rare friends. Okay, that's the first kind. Then the next part of the statement says this, you have a lot of friends like that, you don't have anybody who's really going to be there when you need them. You're going to come to ruin. But there is a friend. This is a different Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word here, the root word is ahab. And this person sticks closer than a brother. This is someone who is absolutely and totally committed to you. And the thing that separates these two friendships is a committed love. So this is, a, this is where I want to end this morning. Many Christians know Jesus as a companion, a Facebook friend, a Rhea kind of friend. 
And if that's the way your Christianity works, <clears throat> it's going to be kind of ruined. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh. But if you know Jesus as an Ahab friend, and by the way, he has already done his part to prove and to show how much he wants to have this you know, real relationship, a deep, committed relationship with you. The rest of it really is on you to respond. He's already initiated. He's already made the sacrifice so that what does it look like for you to really know that and internalize it? And this is where I return to what I said earlier. One of your New Year's resolutions is to begin a real relationship with Jesus Christ. No more shallowness, guys. Don't make it shallow. I'll be 53 this next year. I'll be 53. I know I look good. I'll be 53 <laughs> next year. Okay? <laughs> 53 years old. Man, I went by fast. Life is, when you're young, you think you're immortal, invincible. But you realize life is about relationships. And when we understand the love that God has for us, it begins to lift us out of, watch this, all those earthly relationships that are good, but we actually weren't created primarily to be in earthly relationships. You know, God creates Adam. He creates Eve. They're alone together in the garden. They have everything they need. God seems to be the perfect parent, and yet the kids rebel. God redeems it, and he says, we're going to take this tragic situation, and I'm going to flip it on its head, and I'm going to use this to show everybody how badly I want to be in a relationship with them. I'm going to do my part. Now, it's up to you to respond. What more could God do? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just to free you from any distractions. And I'm going to have you do just a little business, a little year-end evaluation. How about that with God? Because <laughs> I've been doing this for the last couple of weeks, and now it's your turn. And maybe the prayer is simply, God, this next year, let's work on the relationship, just you and I. Where does that begin? Certainly it begins with communication. That's why God gives us his word. It's rich. It gives us life. I'm going to say, we want to know the words of Jesus. Well, in God's goodness, he's actually written them down, and we have them recorded. We have all these amazing biographies in our Bibles about the life of Jesus. We just need to absorb them, digest them. It's communicating through prayer, spending time in the word. It's being around the people of God. God uses three things to increase our relationship with him. He uses his word, his spirit, and his people. Looking ahead to 2022, how can we step into that? Less screen time, more relational time. All those earthly relationships that we want to have worked out, really, they get worked out as we work on our relationship with the God who created us, to be in relationship with him first and foremost, and then we accept his love, his love begins to flow out of us onto others. Father, that is what we want. God, I, I'm just so grateful for every person 
that is here, whether it's their first time in church or they've been attending for many years, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one as only your spirit can draw them. God, we look forward to an incredible year together as a church family. Continue to increase our reach for your glory so that Jesus can be made known and that Jesus can be made famous. That's what we want. All for your glory, we pray. In the name of the one who makes it all possible, his name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen.